Engaging conversation on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Primetime News. Today is Friday, December 9th. I'm Leslie Palma. And I'm Teresa Watson. Thank you for joining us. In our top story, we will discuss a horrific case of sexual abuse of a young girl that led to an abortion at 12 years old. With the Georgia race behind us, I will discuss what we can expect from the 118th Congress and other political news. I'll be reporting on why more than 400 congregations in Texas have voted to leave the United Methodist Church and other topics in abortion in the news. Father Frank will be telling us what's at stake for pro-life in the Supreme Court case argued this week. Our guest Ingrid Duran from National Right to Life will share with us what we can expect in the states in 2023. Be sure to stay till the end for an uplifting story on a pro-life flight attendant who has been cleared for takeoff. This is the worst story you probably haven't heard yet, and you haven't heard it because most of the media is ignoring it, and they're ignoring it because abortion is involved. In Omaha, Nebraska, Pedro Fernando Flores raped his stepdaughter for more than four years, beginning when she was just 10 years old. She became pregnant at 12, so her mother, Shauna Fernando, took her to get an abortion. Then she brought the girl back home, where the rape would continue for two more years. The abuse was finally revealed when the girl confided in someone at church. She already had told her mother, but her mother did nothing to protect her child. The girl is now 16 and living with a foster family that plans to adopt her. The stepdad was sentenced to 60 to 80 years in prison at his trial earlier this year. The mom, Shauna Fernando, was sentenced last week to 10 to 14 years, but it's likely she will serve only five to seven years. She also relinquished parental rights for her other six children. It appears this story only was reported in the Omaha World newspaper. Many important details were not included and could not be confirmed in time for this broadcast. The question we would like answered is, what did the abortion mill do when presented with a pregnant 12-year-old rape victim? Did they report the situation to authorities as required by law? If not, everyone involved in this horrific cover-up should be prosecuted. In sentencing, Fernando, Douglas County Judge Olan Engelman, became visibly emotional as he rebuked her for doing nothing to save her daughter. It was your job as a parent, he said, and you failed her. During the trial, prosecutor Katie Kilcoyne said the girl had to recount the details of her stepfather's crimes and her abortion more than six times. The girl said she was six weeks pregnant when her mother took her for a chemical abortion. Presumably, she took that first pill at the abortion mill, taking the second one at home, where her parents had left her alone while they went to church. Ms. Kilcoyne did not reply to a request for comment. Omaha has just one abortion business, Planned Parenthood, but it's not known if that's where the crimes against this child were allowed to continue. We will keep you updated as we learn more. In more news from Nebraska, a letter threatening pro-lifers was found at the St. John Paul II Newman Center in Bellevue last weekend. If our right to abortion in Bellevue is taken away due to the attempt to pass an abortion ban and it gets passed, we will shoot up your Newman Center with our new AR-14 rifle, said the note, which was posted online by Students for Life of America. The letter was addressed to a priest at the Newman Center and signed by Jane's Revenge, a violent extremist group that has claimed responsibility for pregnancy center attacks across the country. A Students for Life team was at the center to work on plans to shut down the late-term abortion business run by Leroy Carhart in Bellevue. 
Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock beat GOP challenger Herschel Walker in Georgia's runoff election on Tuesday, giving Democrats a slim majority in the U.S. Senate. Now that the Georgia race is behind us, what can we expect from the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House of Representatives in the 118th Congress when it convenes next month? With Warnock's victory, Democrats will return to Washington with a 51 to 49 majority in the Senate. Although Senate Democrats only managed a net pickup of one seat this election cycle, that lone seat carries with it great significance. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and the Democrats will now be able to approve President Biden's left-wing judicial nominees with greater ease and can launch oversight investigations and issue subpoenas as they see fit. The slight majority also gives Schumer wiggle room on tight votes since he no longer needs to keep Senators Manchin and Sinema on board for every liberal measure before the Senate. This comes as welcome news for Manchin in West Virginia and Sinema in Arizona, who are both on the ballot in 2024 in what promises to be a hotly contested race. On the House side, Republicans picked up nine seats on their way to clinching a tight 222 to 213 majority, the same slim advantage that outgoing Speaker Nancy Pelosi had to work with in the previous Congress. With this majority, Republicans can, can drive their common sense America first agenda if they can stick together like Pelosi's Democrats did, as well as provide a check on the Biden administration. But with Democrats in charge of the Senate and a Republican majority in the House, don't expect much in the way of great legislative achievements for the next two years. New Hampshire Democrats said they won't easily cede their state's first in the nation's status on the presidential primary calendar to a proposal by President Joe Biden to move South Carolina to the front of the line in 2024. But South Carolina Representative James Clyburn, the House Majority Whip, said Democrats in the Granite State should recognize that South Carolina has been a better proving ground for presidential candidates who go on to win the White House. Last week, the Democratic National Committee Rules and Bylaws Committee adopted a resolution that would have South Carolina leapfrog Iowa and New Hampshire and hold the first presidential nominating contest of the cycle on February 3, 2024. Under the proposal, New Hampshire and Nevada would go next on the 6th, followed by Georgia on the 13th, and Michigan on the 27th. The schedule, which was modified from an earlier proposal, still needs to be approved by the full DNC. The change would push Iowa, a state in which Democrats last month lost their last House seat and got crushed by 12 points in a state Senate race they had hoped would be competitive, out of the early state calendar entirely. The move comes after the party's embarrassing caucuses in 2020 that led to delayed results. New Hampshire Democrats have criticized the proposed change, suggesting they don't plan to follow it even if the party adopts it, noting the requirement to hold the nation's first primary is set in state law. A second Indiana judge has blocked the state's near-total abortion ban from being enacted, ruling that it violates the state's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. In her decision, Marion Superior Court Judge Heather Welsh said the law would impose a substantial burden on the six plaintiffs, three Jewish women, one Muslim woman, one woman with general spiritual beliefs, and Hoosier Jews for Choice, a pro-abortion organization. 
The law already had been blocked by a separate ruling in another court that found it violates liberties guaranteed by the state constitution. An appeal of that ruling will be taken up by the state Supreme Court on January 12th. The second case also is expected to wind up before the state's high court. More than 400 congregations in Texas have voted to leave the United Methodist Church over its liberal stance on abortion, same-sex marriage, and other issues. Many of the Texas congregations say they'll join a new, more conservative breakaway, breakaway denomination, the Global Methodist Church. The United Methodist Church is the nation's second largest Protestant denomination. Only the Southern Baptist Church is larger. Metzger, a German restaurant in Churchill, Virginia, gave just 90 minutes notice before canceling a reception planned by the Pro-Life Family Foundation of Virginia last week. Discrimination on the basis of sex, race, religion, or nationality is illegal, but businesses in Virginia are allowed to refuse service based on political beliefs. Meanwhile in D.C., a fundraising banquet hosted by the Capitol Hill Pregnancy Resource Center was disrupted by three pro-abortion protesters who screamed obscenities and told attendees they had blood on their hands. The Capitol Hill Center is one of dozens that have been vandalized since the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade was leaked to the media. No arrests have been made. Employees of Meta, better known as Facebook, were told this week that they cannot discuss sensitive issues like abortion, gun control, or vaccine efficacy while on the job. We think this is the right thing to do for the long-term health of our internal community, according to a memo from Meta that was leaked to Fortune magazine. Charges against a Red Rose rescue priest and three other pro-lifers have been dropped in New Jersey. Father Fidelis Mozinski and the others were arrested in 2018 for allegedly trespassing at a Planned Parenthood abortion mill in Trenton. During a Red Rose rescue, pro-life advocates enter abortion mills to talk to women waiting their turn for an abortion, giving each a rose and hoping to change her mind. The Thomas More Society represented the pro-lifers, claiming women in the abortion mill had not been warned of the grave psychological risks of abortion. The law firm believes this unusual defense led to the charges being dismissed. If the case had gone to trial, the state would have had to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defense claim was true, was untrue. Father Fidelis still faces federal charges stemming from an incident outside Planned Parenthood on Long Island. And finally, in a disturbing report out this week, Reuters News Service said the Nigerian military since 2013 has been running a secret program to abort the pregnancies of up to 10,000 women and girls, many of whom had been kidnapped and raped by the Islamic terrorist group Boko Haram. The abortions primarily were carried out without the women's consent. Those who resisted were beaten and had abortion pills forced inside their bodies. At least one woman is believed to have died as a result of a forced abortion. Four soldiers and one guard said they were told by superiors that the program was needed to destroy insurgent fighters before they could be born. The military denies that it carried out the abortions and accused the International News Service of wickedness. And that's Abortion in the News. Hi, friends. Father Frank Pavone here, happy to comment on the Moore v. Harper Supreme Court case. It's about how much control state legislatures have over the conduct of elections in that state. Now, I'm going to read right from the Constitution, uh, Article uh, 1, Section 4, says these words, The times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Pretty clear words, and yet disputes have arisen over the years, and particularly recently in North Carolina, as to whether the state court the high court in North Carolina, could change or throw out provisions that the state legislature made regarding elections. And that's what is immediately at issue here. 
One of the things the state legislatures do in various states is to redefine the boundaries of the congressional districts. And uh, the uh, legislators of North Carolina redefined that map uh, recently, and uh, the state's uh, Supreme Court didn't like it, and so they, uh, they invalidated that. So that's where the dispute comes in. The lawmakers are saying, hey, we're given authority by the Constitution to determine how elections are going to happen in our state. Why is the state court taking this away from us? Now, this is important when you look at the bigger picture because we have seen a lot of fights arise over recent elections where the state legislature put certain provisions in place, like when the cutoff time is for the ballots or what the ballots have to be uh, marked by to, to qualify. There has to be a signature, for example, uh, as some state law says. Um, and uh, election officials have told election workers to disregard that. Some secretaries of state have told election workers to disregard certain uh, provisions of the law or have gone ahead and presumed to change those provisions. And again, it's a constitutional question. Does the Constitution give these state legislatures the final say in what the, uh, the norms for the elections will be in that state? So that's why it's so important in terms of restoring confidence to people in the way that elections are done. It needs to be transparent, it needs to be secure, it needs to be fair, it needs to be constitutional. So let's keep a close watch. Breach for Life has been telling people about this case for many months now and pointing out how important it is to our national elections. Moore versus Harper in the United States Supreme Court. God bless you. Pro-life lawmakers racked up big wins in more than a dozen state legislatures in the midterm elections, and that should translate into more laws protecting the unborn from abortion. To gain a better understanding of what we can expect, we've invited Ingrid Duran from National Right to Life Committee to join us this evening. With more than 25 years experience in state legislative policy, Ingrid is the director of the state legislation department at National Right to Life. She advises directors, state lobbyists, and state legislators as they work to advance pro-life laws and defeat pro-abortion legislation. Ingrid is also the second vice president of Maryland Right to Life and serves on its legislative committee and is also the secretary for DC Metro Life Alliance. Welcome, Ingrid. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure well, to be here. So Ingrid, after Roe v. Wade was overturned in June, many states had laws restricting abortion that were ready to be enacted. But as we know, many of those laws have been blocked in courts. Are there some states that will be working on new laws as the legislatures reconvene in 2023? Yeah, so what the Dobbs decision did was give the power back to the states in order to protect unborn children. And um, what had happened was this was just a, a, a really good recipe uh, for the pro-life movement because there were some states that had pre-Roe abortion laws already on the books protecting unborn children. Then you also had some states that had had a past trigger laws. These were laws that would protect unborn children in the event that Roe would fall, which it did. And then um, we had states that um, had heartbeat or just early uh, protection laws that would protect unborn children um, that were passed after Roe. And so with the mixture of all three of these types of laws, you have right now 
um, unborn children protected in various states. And some of those states are in litigation, like for instance, Kentucky's heartbeat law is in litigation, but the law is allowed to be in effect um, while it's being, while the court is deciding it. Whereas in another state like South Carolina also passed a heartbeat bill, theirs is currently in litigation, but the state is not allowed to enforce it. Although previously it was enforced. And um, I do encourage people to go to the um, to our website, www.nrlc.org, because we have a list there of the states and where it stands. Because, um, like I said in the beginning, um, it was changing. Like at, at one point, Louisiana went in and out of effect about three or four times in a matter of two weeks. Right. So, <laughs> and, and theirs is now in effect. Um, Iowa is protecting unborn children at 20 weeks, North Carolina at 20 weeks, but in Alabama, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, Mississippi, unborn children there are being protected in Alabama and Oklahoma throughout gestation in um in Mississippi, I believe also throughout gestation and Louisiana, but then some, you know, like Kentucky is at heartbeat. And so every state is a little bit different um, in how they're protecting unborn children. So it's a, it's a fascinating time to be uh, in our movement. Definitely. Certainly is. Well, Ingrid, back to the laws that um, have been blocked by courts. If mm -hmm. they end up being permanently blocked, can states go back to the drawing board to try to make those laws judge proof? Absolutely. And, and I think that has been always a, um, a strategy that the pro-life movement has used. I mean, I, I remember when I came on um, just as staff in the state legislative department, partial birth abortion was being debated. And the first version of that law, which was um, invalidated in the first partial birth abortion ban act, the Stenberg versus Carhartt, um, decision, you know, we went back and improved the medical emergency language and the definition for partial birth abortion, which was then upheld in um, in the Gonzalez case. And so we have done that before, where if a court says, hey, you know, this is not going to fly, um, then we start to tailor the laws so that it can be um, upheld and it can have the best chance at protecting unborn children. So what about states like Kentucky and Kansas that voted down ballot initiatives that would have built protections for the unborn into their constitution? Can we expect pro-life laws there, pro-abortion laws? What, what are we looking at in those well, states? I, I think both. I think that um, Dobbs was a wake-up call for, uh, for both sides of the aisle. And I think that we are going to start seeing, you know, the, the way that people responded to Dobbs, right, was you know, on our side was how can we support mothers and how can we uh, protect these babies? On our opponent side, you had um, so many different states. Um, here I have this list. You have a, you have all of these different states like Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, uh, Florida, Hawaii, Illinois, Kansas, Maine, New Jersey, New Mexico. Their governors um, had uh issued executive orders protecting abortion access, you know, making uh, state agencies provide information on where to get an abortion and also prohibiting these state agencies from working with other state governments 
where abortion is illegal in those states. And so I think in 2023, we are going to see um, some states introduce and want to codify some of these laws, um, you know, protecting abortion access or, you know, making uh, abortion back into like, or having the rose standard in their state. I know, at, for instance, South Dakota, um, they're gathering signatures to uh, legalize abortion there. Um, and it would be like towards the Roe standards, like codifying Roe in their state constitution, which is very dangerous for the unborn child. And it's very dangerous then to pass common sense pro-life laws. And so in states like Kansas and Kentucky, where it may be challenging to pass pro-life laws, we're still going to try to do everything that we can. Maybe they won't be uh, able to yet, you know, pass something like a dismemberment law or a heartbeat law, but there may be other pieces of legislation where we are supporting uh, pregnant women, where we are giving families information on resources should their child um, have some type of disability. Um, so I think those laws are still really important. And so I think that we're still going to see some pro-life laws, you know, like maybe, uh, you know, considering making it illegal to transport a minor across state lines without her parents' knowledge, if maybe she has an older boyfriend or his family, uh, which we've seen in the past where people will try to circumvent parental involvement laws, not let her parents know what's going on and transporting a minor across state lines. So the National Right to Life Committee has post-Dobbs legislation, and this is a comprehensive um, piece of legislation that has several moving factors and also not just protecting unborn children from abortion, but also making sure that minors are not allowed to cross state lines, making sure that people aren't aiding and abetting abortion, you know, um, on the black market um, in those states where unborn children are protected, and also uh, making sure that people aren't trafficking abortion drugs into the state illegally. Um, and then this law also has like three different enforcement mechanism, not just criminal penalties and civil remedies, but also administrative penalties as well. And so I think that we're just going to see um, a lot of different ways. And, you know, the pro-life movement has been very creative in finding ways to protect the unborn child, ways to educate other people about the unborn child. And that is one of the things that I love most about um the legislation that National Right to Life um, models is that it's not just uh, a protective mechanism for the unborn child, but this legislation also has the ability to educate people beyond our base so that we can get more people to understand why it's important to protect unborn children, why these children deserve, right, you know, deserve to be protected and have rights and, and just understanding um, just how that, that they are that they are human beings deserving of protection. Well, Ingrid, in terms of expanding abortion access, are there states working on laws that would make the situation even more dire for the children in the womb? Absolutely. And we are seeing, I mean, in um in the midterm election, California, Vermont, and Michigan codified abortion on demand in their states. And so in those states, it is going to be challenging. But I always say you have to remain persistent, prayerful and patient because you never know. Even let's say if 
a place like Michigan just introduced um, a law giving women information about the possibility of abortion pill reversal. And let's say that it'll be very challenging to get that law passed or even heard in committee. However, just having the debate, just you know, going on air and speaking about these things, there might be one woman who listens to this, who happened to take the mifepristone, who might change her mind. And that if that if it saves one life, then that is success in my eyes. And so I think that we don't give up even in states where it might be challenging because you never know who's listening. And um, and I do believe that in states like Minnesota, Maine, uh, in, in states that it's going to be very challenging to protect unborn children, there is going to be a push not only to have abortion on demand, but put taxpayers on the hook to pay for those abortions. And what they're, what our opponents are doing is that they're equating abortion with healthcare. So they're taking an elective procedure that willfully takes the life of a human being and saying, this is healthcare. And we as pro-lifers need to understand just how dangerous it is to say things like that and really start reframing the debate to understand that Abortion is not healthcare. It is an elective, an elective procedure that takes the life of an unborn child, and that there are alternatives to abortion. That that woman doesn't have to have an abortion, and also bring the debate back surrounding around the baby, and that you know unborn children have the capacity to feel pain. They have the capacity to. Um, distinguish the mother's voice from anyone else's uh, when they're in their fourth month um, of development, you know, just to understand that these babies, you know, have a beating heart and have brain waves that can be electronically measured. And so I think it's really important to focus back on the baby and also focus on resources that help support pregnant women, whether it is for social economic reasons or just support reasons, just to let them know, hey, Abortion is not your only option. We're here for you and meet her with compassion and love. Well, I think you're looking ahead to a very busy year and we really, appreciate, <laughs> we really appreciate you making time to help our viewers what, understand what comes next in post-Roe America. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I do anticipate a very busy year, but you know, while the other side may have, um, the money and the minions and, you know, this misinformation on their side, we always have the truth. And so I, um, you know, I, I stay encouraged because of that. That's great. Ingrid, thank you again. We hope you'll join us um, at another time and uh, good night for now. Thank you. All right. Thank, thank you. you. We like to end each show on a positive note. So here's some good news. A judge has ordered Southwest Airlines to reinstate a flight attendant who was fired because she was pro-life. Flight attendant Charlene Carter of Aurora, Colorado, worked for Southwest for nearly 21 years. In 2017, she was fired after sharing her pro-life beliefs on Facebook and speaking out against her union spending members' dues on pro-abortion activities. In July, a federal district court in Dallas awarded her $5.1 million, but she pressed on with her legal battle because she wanted to get back on the job. On Tuesday, a federal judge ordered Southwest to rehire Carter with full seniority and benefits. But the judge also reduced Ms. Carter's settlement to $810,000. Bags fly free with Southwest, but free speech didn't fly at all with Southwest in this case, District Judge Brantley Starr said in his ruling. 
For her part, Ms. Carter said, I want to go back, hold my head up high, and say you can't do this anymore. The airline was ordered to send a copy of the jury's verdict and judgment to all its flight attendants and post the documents on internal bulletin boards for at least 60 days. Southwest also must inform flight attendants that it is not allowed to discriminate against them for expressing their opinion about abortion on social media. Thank you so much for joining us on Pro-Life Primetime News, produced at Priest for Life headquarters in Titusville, Florida. We hope you will join us every Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We hope you will support this show and all of our broadcasts, including Just Ask Janet, our daily masses, and Father Frank's broadcasts by making a donation to ProLifeGift.org. These donations help fund all of our work here at Priests for Life, which enables us to continue educating, equipping, and activating the pro-life community to end abortion. Do you have an idea for a story? Are you someone whose baby was saved because of the help of a sidewalk counselor? Would you like to expose something in the abortion industry? Then please email us at media at priestsforlife.org. I'm Leslie Palma, Communications Director. And I'm Teresa Watson, Executive Manager. Remember, life is the only choice. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.